Amen. So this week we have a few things happening we want to tell you about, of course. Uh, we're coming up on Christmas, and we'll be gathering as a church here together Christmas Eve at 5 p.m. and 7 p.m. for our Christmas Eve uh, worship services. Our services follow the pattern of being a service of lessons and carols, and by lessons we mean scripture lessons. We'll be reading passages of scripture that walk us through the Christmas story and the nativity of Jesus, and in between those segments of the story, we'll sing Christmas carols together. Then eventually we'll come uh, to a point where there'll be an hour and a half long sermon by me. <laughs> the chuckles ensued. No, it's actually going to be a very short little homily that I'll share with everyone on Christmas Eve. But really, uh, the service concludes beautifully with the singing of Silent Night by Candlelight. We'll do that at both 5 p.m. and 7 p.m. For those of you joining us online, we'll be uh, live streaming the 5 p.m. service. That's the one... Uh, you should watch if you are uh, joining us online. And then that service will be available afterwards. So if you don't have time to uh, participate in worship at 5 o'clock but want to do so at 6 or 7 or 8, you can access that live streamed service so that you can watch it at that time and participate in worship together with us. Last week I shared with you about uh, an initiative we're launching in our church to gather this community into some small groups together. And it's our small group and membership class. So there are people in our congregation who uh, would like to explore what it might mean to be a member of this church. This is the class you should participate in. And we also have people in our church that have been members of it for quite some time. And we would like them to learn about what it means to be in a small group. And these are uh, not Bible study groups. These are not necessarily prayer groups. These are Wesleyan small groups. They're called within the Methodist tradition a class meeting. And it, what, it, it's, what it's like for us to be in a small group of spiritual accountability together where we, in John Wesley's words, watch over one another with love. That QR code there is a way for you to register to participate in that class that I'll be teaching along with uh, Dr. Sebignon Gnasu, who teaches at Seattle Pacific University in the School of Theology. The first and the last class of the eight-week session are held in person in the Upper Fine Center. The six classes in between are going to be held online. Now, this last week, we sent out in the newsletter an announcement about the small group and membership class. And in the announcement, it says, insert link here where you're supposed to click to register for the class. Unfortunately, it still says, insert link here. That's not much help to you. So I made the executive decision today to go analog. So up here in the front of the sanctuary, I have a clipboard with paper on it. You know, paper never turns off. It never crashes. It's always reliable. And so I have paper up here. So if you'd like to participate in that class, come on up after worship. Let us know. We'll write your name down on that piece of paper, and I will make sure that you get registered to participate in that class coming up on the 10th of January. All right? I hope to see you there. Let's pause just for a moment for prayer. Lord, we give you thanks for gathering us together as your people this morning and for the opportunity we have to sit in this story of Joseph and wonder what it might mean for us to dive in to take a great leap of faith, knowing that you are the with us God, that you never disappoint, you never abandon, you are always and everywhere present. So may we stand in the strength of that presence this day as we listen, as we hear, and as your spirit speaks to us in Jesus' name, amen. So I've shared with you a story before that um, when I lived in Southern California and grew up there, I would go body surfing. And here's a picture of a person body surfing 
And it looks exactly like I look when I body surf, other than being younger, uh, thinner, and more muscular. But besides that, this is exactly what it looks like when I go body surfing uh, in Southern California. I haven't tried in the state of Washington yet. I may have to work up my gumption because of this problem that you'll see on the next slide. Whenever you go to the ocean, you always have to make this decision. How am I going to get in the water? And when I first started body surfing, I'd get in the water gradually because I thought it was easier to acclimate to the cold water that way. And as I got older, I learned that, no, that's not the best way to acclimate. The best way is to jump right in the water, just get in. So I would uh, learn uh, how to get into the water and then just dive into the waves and get it over with. Now, I never swam in any water this cold that you see in the picture behind you. This guy's going out in the snow in a full suit, ready to go surfing. Even I would never do such a thing. But I have a friend of mine who would, and I want you to meet him. Here's a picture of him. This is called the Pure Club. And the Pure Club is a group of people, women and men, who every Wednesday morning meet in the parking lot of Newport Beach at the Pier in Southern California, and they go out and swim around the pier every Wednesday morning. It's a little over a two-mile swim they have to make, taking all the current into the equation of swimming around the pier and back in. I apologize that you're having to look at people at their speedos at 11 o'clock in the morning, but that's one of the requirements of the Pier Club that if you're going to join the peer club, you have to do the swim in Speedos. You're not allowed to use any kind of wetsuit or anything to keep you warm. You've got to go with maximum skin exposed. And they do this every single Wednesday, whether it's in the winter, whether it's in the summer, no matter what time of the year it is. And I wanted you to see my friend. He's in the back row on the far left. Looks like he's holding a white thing in his hand there. That's my friend Jeff Kohler. And he's been one of my best friends for years, and he's a member of the peer club and did that swim every single day until he decided to retire early from being an attorney, and he and his wife bought a fifth-wheel trailer, and they drive around the United States now. They are take-the-plunge kind of people. They are the kind of people that dive right into whatever they do. When Jeff was going to law school, he uh, was a Huntington Beach City lifeguard, and so uh, he loves being in the water, loves being at the beach. We actually, his nickname is The Fish, because he likes being in the water so much. He's a perfect example to me of an individual that does his homework, but yet when the moment comes to act, he takes the dive. He jumps right in. He takes the plunge. And that's what I want to talk with you about today, how taking the plunge beats dipping the toe in the water. And what better story to look at in the Bible that illustrates this truth for us than the story of Joseph. You know, Joseph is a wonderful example of an individual who learns how to take the plunge. Because when the story starts out, Joseph is dipping the toe. And there are moments when dipping the toe might seem best. Joseph is betrothed to the young woman named Mary. She's probably about 13 years old when she entered into her betrothal that would last a year. That's like an engagement, if you will. And Joseph, as best we know, it doesn't really say so in Scripture, but as best we know, he was likely an older person than Mary was. And so their two families have agreed together that they'll be married. And so the betrothal begins with a contract between their two families, and then there's going to be some money and goods exchanged as part of the marriage that will probably come about a year later. A betrothal is different from our engagement. Our engagement that we have within our own culture can simply be severed by returning a ring, maybe, and breaking up. In this culture, there's only a couple ways a betrothal could end. It would either end in some public accusation of adultery or one of the two died. 
Being betrothed led to an inevitable end, which was to be married to the person to whom you had been betrothed. So when Mary, in the middle of the betrothal, turns up with child, this now creates a difficulty for Joseph. We could probably even call it a problem for him. And the way he processes this problem is by trying to solve the problem. And so he decides that he's going to take the avenue of ending the betrothal, and there's two ways he can do that. He can either publicly accuse Mary of adultery, which would lead to a very public trial and might likely end in her stoning to death, or he could divorce her privately or quietly, which would simply mean that he would get two witnesses to attest to him that Mary had been unfaithful, and then he could give her a writ of divorce and the betrothal would end. Either way, Joseph walks away. And so what Joseph's decided to do is that he's going to divorce her quietly. It's the best way in his mind he can mitigate the risk against himself being exposed as potentially being the father of this child that actually isn't his versus doing something very public and very damaging and possibly traumatic and life-threatening to Mary. Regardless of how this plays out, in Joseph's mind, he comes out looking good. Mary, no matter what you do, is going to come out of this looking bad. She's going to be the subject of public scorn and ridicule. There's going to be an expectation that she has been unfaithful in her betrothal, seeing as though Joseph has kind of divorced and dismissed her. Joseph is approaching the problem as a problem. And unfortunately, this is how often we're trained, for the most part, to live our lives. Western culture trains us in a methodology of solving problems and analyzing things. And so the ways in which we engage difficulties or struggles or challenges or dilemmas is to treat them as problems that have to be solved. And when that happens, when everything is a problem that has to be solved, it's somewhat like the old adage, we're like a hammer because the only thing we know how to do is solve problems, and if that's true, then everything else is a nail. And we go through our life treating problem like they're things to be solved. This impacts us in so many different ways, and we're going to talk about some of them this morning, about how our problem-solving mindset, although it has its advantages, at times keeps us from seeing the possibilities that God might have for our lives and for our work together. And so let's talk about taking the plunge. Taking the plunge is a risk, and it's always a risk when we take the plunge. When you dive right into a body of water you've never been in before, you hope it's deep enough. You don't know how cold or how warm it's going to be. Taking the plunge is a risk. So let's walk through what happens to Joseph when he decides to take the plunge. The first thing Joseph does is something I think all of us should be completely aware of doing all the time, and that is this, to do your best thinking, to do your best thinking. In Joseph's case, he's done his best thinking, and his best thinking is that the way for him to get out of this situation to solve this problem is to divorce Mary and let her deal with the circumstance and the situation that's happened to her. It says in the text that it said Joseph had thought this over. He had thought this over. And it's right after the text says that in Matthew 1 that the angel comes to him in a dream while he's asleep and then speaks this message that he needs to hear. I don't know if Joseph made a list of pros and cons. 
I don't know if he did a SWOT analysis, strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, threats. I don't know if he looked over the PL. I don't know what he did. But he had thought it over and he had decided that this was the best course of action for him to take. And so let's be clear. Joseph thought it over and made his decision. There's nothing at all wrong with us pausing to have this moment of deliberately thinking and analyzing the situation we're in, wondering about all of its dimensions. You know, there's always been times in our lives when we've probably done something on impulse, right? And then after we do something on impulse, we have buyer's remorse. That never happens to anyone, does it? That never happens to anyone a week before Christmas, does it? There's a lot of impulse that happens at this time of year in our lives for a whole variety of reasons surrounding Christmas. But buyer's remorse is when you make a decision without any calculation at all. You have no deliberation. You just act on impulse, and then you wonder, why Why did I do that? When you look back upon that moment in your life or whatever that decision happened to be. We're going to talk more about that a little bit later. We're going to talk about sunk costs. So just hold that in the, the parking lot of your brain for a little bit. We're going to come back to that in a little bit. But what I do want to say is when you've done your homework, when you've looked at the issue, when you've tried to think about the upsides and the downsides and you've thought your way through it, what we think within Western culture is that we're done. That's it. We've, we're finished. Now we're ready to decide to do something. And the story about Joseph reminds us that you're not done. You've actually just started. You've actually just started. So a question for you to wonder about this week might be this. What life question facing you today needs deeper thought? What life question facing you today needs deeper thought? Do your best thinking. That's the first thing we learn in this story. The second thing we learn in the story is that we're to discern God's call. Discern God's call. Now, in Joseph's case, he was fortunate enough to have an angel appear to him in a dream. And there are moments, I think, in all of our lives where we would appreciate an angel appearing to us in a dream and telling us what to do. Now, that doesn't happen all the time, but sometimes it does happen. It's happened in my life several times where I have sensed God speaking and moving powerfully. I've shared one or two of those experiences in sermons throughout the last six months with you. I believe those things happen all the time, but they're not as common as I think we wish. So how is it we're to engage in this process of discerning God's purpose or God's call? Now, yesterday was December 17. That should be a revelation to you. No, it's not. December 17th, yesterday, was the 29th anniversary of my first date with my wife. December 17. So, we were, went on our first date on December 17, 1993. We were engaged on April the 3rd, 1994. We were married on November 12th, 1994. Bettina and I got married 11 months after our very first date. We decided to get married not even four months after our first date. So you can imagine the kind of conversations that she and I had separately with other people. People trying to talk us out of it, people saying you're too impulsive, you know, are you sure you really want to do this? The advice we got was downright Jobian. Now, Jobian is what I'm talking about, is the, the man Job in the Bible who had this whole calamity happen to him, and then three different friends came to him and gave him advice about how he's to handle the situation he's in. And none of the three really gave him good advice. 
as he was dealing with what was happening in his life. So I know what it's like to be in that moment where you decide to do something and then friends and people come around you and go, hmm, I don't think that's a good idea. Well, here we are, you know, 29 years later, and most of those people have just evaporated. We're still here. And part of the reason why is that it wasn't so much we did the pros and the cons, the upsides and the downsides of the analysis. There was something that happened where we simply knew that God had moved in a way that called us together. We discerned it. On the profit and loss, on the pros and cons, on the SWOT analysis, it probably wasn't a good idea. But the Spirit of God moved in a way that convinced us this is exactly what we needed to do. And so our rationale was, if this is what we need to do, why wait? And so we got married. I think the situation that Joseph finds himself in is that he's trying to discern God's call. And in his case, an angel comes to him and speaks to him. We need to remember what it is when we want to discern God's call. There's lots of different techniques we can use to engage and discern God's call. I just want to talk about two of them today. One of them is one of the primary ways we discern God's call is through prayer. And I think one of the ways we need to learn how to pray is not only to pray for ourselves as we're trying to discern what God is calling us to do, but we need to invite other people into prayer with us so that we have a community of people praying around us and with us. Those people praying for us are called intercessors. And one of the great dangers of our time in prayer is when intercessors pray for us along the line of their sympathy for us. Because what happens is our friends and the people we're close to pray in a way where they earnestly desire that which is good and best for us. But that which seems to be good and best for us may not necessarily be what God is calling us to. God actually might be calling us to something vastly more difficult. God might be calling us to something deeply impossible. So when we pray along the line of sympathy with other people, all we're simply doing is closing off the reality about how God might do something outside the boundaries of that. So if someone has a particular dilemma or a particular problem, our goal in prayer isn't to somehow talk to God as if we need to persuade God to help them out. And oftentimes that's how we pray. We pray in a way that is inviting God to deliver the goods, bail us out, fix whatever this is. And what we learn about prayer, if we spend time looking at it from a biblical standpoint, prayer is about shaping the prayer. That God is at work, God is moving, God is calling. And what prayer is about is aligning ourselves to that. Prayer is about aligning ourselves to the heart and purpose of God, so that's what we're praying for. In a sense, that's literally what it means for us to pray in the name of Jesus. We pray for that which Jesus himself is praying for. Not what we would like or what we think the other person would like. We're praying for the call of God to be realized So prayer is one way. The other way is, of course, Scripture. Spending time reading the text of the Bible. For in it, we're going to read story after story after story of people whose lives were shaped by God and molded by God. And we're going to see a bit of our own story when we read Scripture. So reading Scripture helps illumine us so we can begin to think 
the way God is thinking and the way God is moving. It helps us, again, align ourselves to the heart of God. Prayer and reading Scripture isn't about trying to convince God to change God's mind. It's about God shaping us into people that will know his mind and seek that which God has called and invited us into. So some questions for us to think about is where are you making space to hear the word of God for your life? I truly believe that these small groups that we're starting, these Wesleyan small groups, are one of the ways we can hear that word of God. There's so many different ways we can discern God's will. I only talked about prayer and scripture. There's community, there's spiritual disciplines like fasting, contemplation, meditation, so many other ways we can engage in that space. That's just two of them. Well, Joseph has this dream, and when he wakes up from the dream, he takes the next step. Number three, he decides to take action. He decides to take action. Joseph woke up from the dream, and he makes the choice to do what he hadn't thought of doing. It apparently did not cross his mind that he should continue in the betrothal with Mary, culminating, of course, in their marriage. This is very much like what we talked about a few weeks ago when we talked about what happened to Zechariah. Remember the, the axiom, we don't know what we don't know? Well, this is where it comes back again in this story, that Joseph doesn't know what he doesn't know. It never crossed his mind that there was another option available to him, not just publicly accuse Mary of adultery or privately divorce her. There was actually another option, and this other option is that he should continue in the betrothal and that he should be married to Mary and that they should begin their life together and that the child she carries is conceived by the Holy Spirit. That never crossed his mind. And the angel opens up this possibility. This is, as we've talked about, this is the space God loves to play in. It's this third space with these possibilities that we've never imagined, the things we've never thought of, the, 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 the consciousness that exists outside of our own mind where God moves and speaks in such a powerful way. That's the place where God is moving. And so Joseph wakes up, he decides that this choice for compassion and companionship with Mary is the choice he needs to make, and that's exactly what he does. The choice he makes defies all logic. It defies all analysis. Because Mary has turned up with child in her betrothal. So by continuing in the betrothal with her, now what happens? You see, the, the scarlet letter that Mary was painted with, all the side-eyed looks she got from people because she was pregnant in her betrothal, now he's going to get them as well. He now becomes partner with her in enduring what that public awkwardness is going to be about. And the narrative that people are saying that Joseph and Mary decided to have marital relations before their marriage is true. The facts on the surface, look like it's undeniable. But Joseph, because of his vision and the dream he had, now can engage in that conversation differently. He has to deal with the same burden that Mary has to deal with. He makes the leap of faith. So here's a question. 
for us to wonder about. Why is, why is taking a leap of faith so hard for us? And what often holds us back? There are a lot of good answers to both of those questions, but I think one of them is our addiction to analysis. Our unwillingness to disengage the brain only and to sit, sit with God and to listen how God might speak. Analysis has its place, but it's not the end of the game. It's just the beginning of it. So not only does he decide to take action, he does exactly what the angel told him to do, but he then makes another choice that I think it's important for us to hear is that he dedicated everything to God. He really does take the plunge. It says something at the end of the story that's interesting in Matthew chapter 1. It says that Joseph had no marital relations with Mary after he heard this message. Now, you know, it's a popular teaching in the Roman Catholic community that Mary is ever virgin. And that's not what we know from Scripture. We know from Scripture that Mary and Joseph had children after Jesus. As a matter of fact, one of their children, James, becomes one of the leaders of the early church in the book of Acts. So we, we know a, a story that's different from that. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm naming here is this, is that by refusing to have any marital relations with her, wink, wink, we know what we're talking about, he somehow... It indicates that he's moved from simply an acquiescence to what needs to happen for Mary to the fact that he's actually engaged in it with her. He believes by making that choice that something sacred is happening in her, that something of God is happening in her, and that his responsibility is to join Mary in that journey in a very specific kind of way. He hasn't just resigned himself He's actually put himself all in, dedicated everything he has to God to stand by Mary through this process that's going to lead to the birth of her son, of which he's now going to become stepfather, or shall we say, godfather. <laughs> Friends, this is a remarkable choice this man makes because he actually has no reason to make it. He has every reason to walk away. But yet, he recognizes something sacred is happening. God is moving, and he says, oh, I'm in. I'm in for whatever this means, wherever it will take us. So, here's another question for us to wonder about. Describe a time when you hedged your bets on a life choice. How did it work out? And what role did the Lord play in that situation? Remember, a few minutes ago, I asked you to park in the mental parking lot, this idea of sunk costs. And this is the last thing I wanted to share with you. Is that something that's not exactly in today's text, but it's part of the nativity story, is this, is that to deny the power of sunk costs. You know, it's not in the text, but it's in the nativity story. There's a temptation to have some regret, some buyer's remorse about all of this. And why is it that we feel buyer's remorse? Because sometimes we act on impulse without thinking, and then after we've done whatever we've done, we look back on it and say, oh, that was a terrible mistake. So when Bettina and I came to Seattle, we decided that we should replace one of our cars. We only had one car. Replace it with a car that had all-wheel drive. We have a steep little driveway, so we wanted to make sure we could drive up and down the driveway when the blizzard of 22 arrives, right? <laughs> 
So we go get the car, and we'd never bought a car in the state of Washington before. We traded in the car we had. We got this other car. And we go in, and in California, when you buy a car, there are giant signs on the wall when you go into the room where you sign the papers, and it says, there is no cooling off period. Giant signs. It's state law in California that when you sign a contract to buy a new car, you can't bring it back. You're toast. It's like buyer's remorse everywhere. Whereas in Washington, we went in to buy the, sign the papers for the car, and we actually had to sign a paper that said we could bring the car back. And we're like, what the heck? This Washington thing is pretty good. I get to take the car around for a few days and go, oh, this car stinks, and then take it back. In California, it's like, too bad, sucker. You're on the hook. Sunk costs are always going to be present because somehow we think that we haven't analyzed the problem enough, that when we go into a time of risk, when we go into a time of chaos, when we go into a time of uncertainty, we always ask ourselves, what could I have done differently? Those are the sunk costs. And always we respond to the sunk costs, it seems, with regret. I mean, was there a moment probably when Joseph was, you know, sitting around watching TV, maybe having a little snack? He said, God, this is a bad decision. I'm not sure I should have done this. I don't know. But whenever we make that big leap, there's always going to be that moment where we say, God, is that, was that good? That's that, that analytical, that problem-solving part of who we are that just won't sometimes let go. And it's such a powerful force in our life. And what we need to understand is that sunk costs and, and buyer's remorse, those pieces of our lives that we can look back on and say, oh, those were bad decisions. Those become building blocks for us of the present reality we live in. There, there's no way we could have been in the place we're at today if it weren't for not only those successes, but those mistakes that we've made along the way. They're building blocks that make us who we are. And so in some sense, we give, we give thanks, for, thanks to God for the ways in which we've seen correctly. And we also give thanks to God for the failures and the stumblings and the mistakes along the way because we serve a God who redeems our pain. We serve a God that knows how to take all of that human wreckage and turn it into something magnificent in our lives. Let's not lose sight of that. So let's ask ourselves a couple questions this week. What power does regret or remorse have in your life? Where is it justified? And where, where is it unjustified? You know, the, the story about Joseph is interesting because there's two different stories of Joseph in the Gospel of Matthew, and there's no story about Joseph in uh, Luke or Mark or John, only in Matthew's Gospel. And there's two different stories. There's this story here about him having the angel appear to him. And there's a second story that'll happen later where he has another dream when the angel comes to him and says that he and Mary need to leave and go to Egypt because Herod is going to seek to kill all of the male-born children in Bethlehem under the age of two. In other words, he's trying to, to murder the Messiah that's been born. In both of those stories, Joseph has a uniqueness that none of the other characters in the nativity story have. When we read the story of Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, he has a conversation with the angel who appears to him. When the angel appears to Mary, she has a conversation with the angel. When Mary and Elizabeth meet, they both speak to each other. Joseph says absolutely nothing. Not in this story, not in the next story. Joseph is the one character in the nativity that never says a word. He literally is the silent partner in the story. 
And there's a reckoning I think we have to make when we, when we think about taking the plunge versus dipping the toe. And that sometimes taking the plunge is even harder for us to do because we can't reckon how we're not the star of the story. Because Joseph's not the star of the story. He's a supporting cast member. He says absolutely nothing. And I think, truly, friends, there are moments in our lives when God calls us to be the supporting star, not to be the lead player. Joseph's story is remarkable, yet he says absolutely nothing in the biblical story. He chooses to come alongside a a beleaguered woman who has gone through such an ordeal, not only hearing this message from God, but also the whirlwind that she now lives in, in Nazareth, where they live, where everybody is giving her the side-eye. You know what I mean by the side-eye? Hmm. What's her story? What'd she do wrong? What kind of woman is that? And Joseph comes alongside her to support her. Such a fascinating story that plays out, that in this kind of antiquated, patriarchal, man-centered world of the New Testament, Joseph makes the choice to come alongside Mary and to bear the burden with her. And friends, it's a problem we still face in the 21st century, isn't it? Looking for enough men willing to come alongside the brave women of our day to support them in every moment. Friends, it's a great story. And I hope you hear it well. That God has called us to treat life not like a problem, like a promise. What a difference that could make. Let's pray together. Thank you, God, for opening up this great promise to us, this wonderful man, Joseph, who, who sees the truth of what's happening in this young woman he's engaged to, and, and he makes the brave choice to stand alongside her in her courageous choice to, to bring forth this child into the world that will save the world from its sin. So, God, we give thanks for every character in this story. And even as we lift up the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth and Mary and Joseph, all of these stories orbit around Jesus, who comes in the flesh among us. And we are so thankful for his coming and his coming again. Prepare us in these days that we might know him afresh and anew. This we do pray by the power of his name, the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you.